Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. In this episode, we're going to look at Britain's decision to leave the EU through the eyes of a company that is a manufacturer and an exporter and is also closely involved with farming. British Sugar, a subsidiary of Associated British Foods, is the sole British producer of sugar from Sugar Beet, working with thousands of UK businesses and supporting 9,500 jobs in rural England. A recent report by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex found that British makers of basic goods, including food, would receive a boost from Brexit, while high-tech manufacturing would take a hit. Well, Managing Director Paul Kenwood came into the studio this week to talk to our business editor, Sarah Gordon, about what Brexit will mean for his business. Paul, can I start off by asking you about your attitude to the Brexit outcome? Your main rival, Tate & Lyle, supported Brexit, partly because of its opposition to EU quotas at the time. These have obviously now been removed. So how has that affected your approach to the outcome of the negotiations? Sugar was one of the most regulated markets in the European Union. And we had a whole range of things which weighed very heavily on our ability to act in our markets. So quotas were the most obvious manifestation of that. We had a limit. I was not allowed to sell more than 1.056 million tonnes of sugar, a spuriously accurate number that I'll always remember. And so if I had more sugar than that, I had to store it. I wasn't allowed to sell it in the UK, the EU or world. So to make that real in 2014, we had a bumper crop. You can plant a specific area, but you never know what nature will give you. It's an agricultural crop. And we had 1.45 million tonnes of sugar produced that year. And across East Anglia, people who owned warehouses rubbed their hands together with glee because we were a panicked buyer of warehouse space because we weren't able to sell it internationally. So now that we've had that removed, we this year will be exporting far more than we have done previously, so into the EU, um, but also we'll sell over a quarter of a million tonnes of sugar into the world markets, which will end up in the Middle East, North Africa. So there's great opportunity for us from the ending of quotas, so we get those new export markets opening up. But also you get far more competition. So Tate and Lyle certainly are a competitor, but we have at British Sugar with homegrown sugar about half of the market in the UK. Tate's have about a quarter of the market. And then the other quarter comes from European beet producers. So within the single market and the customs union for that matter, there are no tariff barriers, there's frictionless trade, which means for us we have access to markets in Europe, but we also get very strong competition from Europe. 
I had to ask you, what happened to the sugar beet with the record harvest and you put the sugar beet in the warehouses? I mean, and you weren't able to sell it. What did it get used for? We processed it. The factories ran extremely hard that year. We got it all processed, but a lot of it had to go into warehouse. We couldn't bag it. So it was as crystal sugar. And then we had to bring it back into the factories to reprocess it because it's a food ingredient. So not only did we have the costs of storing it in warehouses, we then had to reprocess it. And also it happened that we'd paid a particularly high price for the beet that year. So it hit us on all sorts of different levels. And what's happened to the price of sugar beet since the quotas were lifted? The price of sugar has gone down. The European Union published a index of sugar price and it's come down by 20% since liberalisation in October. There's different bits going on there. So there's a world sugar price which is set by all sorts of things including Brazilian politics, the real dollar exchange rate and the crop in India. And then the European price has always been somewhat disconnected from that because of the regulations and quotas. Now that's gone, we're connected much more to it and that structurally means that you've had lower prices. But is your overall view that the quota regime was misguided? Um, We tend to adapt to the regulations that we're presented with and manage them. I have to say it was difficult and it produced some perverse outcomes, I think. So we are one of the most cost-efficient producers in the world, which, again, people don't understand. So in British Sugar, we have 3,000 growers in East Anglia, and they've increased their yield in field by 20% over the last 30 years. And you get more sugar per acre of land in Norfolk than you do from cane in Brazil. So you know, we are a very efficient grower. And then our factories, we have four factories which are the most efficient in the world. So if you look at independent economists who look at these things, believe it or not, there are such people. We are the lowest cost factories. We've invested £250 million in the last five years. So we knew that liberalisation was coming. We knew that it would lead to more competition and also the opportunity to export. And we knew we had to get ourselves lean and efficient and to compete. So that's what we've done. We've invested a lot of money and now we're hopefully pretty well placed. Um, Apart from the quotas, which EU regulations have the most impact on your business? To be honest, I'm a bit snowblinded by the huge regulation and deregulation that we've just been through. So it's difficult to talk about other EU regulations. I am relatively new to British Sugar. So I joined British Sugar in March 2016. If you've been in British Sugar for 30 years, you're used to being highly regulated. You're used to not selling more than a particular level and price being somewhat controlled. But most businesses, that's an odd, weird thing. Um, And the cultural shift that we're leading in British Sugar to help people understand that we're in a market, so we need to win business from customers where they have a choice, they can go other places. And so you have to have either a better price or better quality or better service or some combination of those things. That's where we're really focused. And regulation, it weighs on us, but I wouldn't want to pick a particularly onerous regulation from the rest because we've just been deregulated in a, a really profound the most way. Major way, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's not that you have a list of regulations which you'd like the UK to tear up post Brexit. No, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think business's job is to work within a framework that government sets and be successful within that framework. So I don't tend to fulminate against different regulations. What I would say is I think that policymaking should be evidence-based. I think that where I struggle with government regulation or action, whether it comes from Westminster or from Brussels, it's generally because I think it's poorly conceived or it doesn't seem to be as evidence-based as we would like. 
But presumably, I mean, ABF is a big corporate actor. I mean, you're presumably lobbying government and saying this is the kind of deal that we would like to see. What are you asking for? We're focusing on outcomes more than we are on precisely how you get there. What I mean by that is on trade. Trade is the biggest thing for British sugar uh, and for various bits of ABF. We want to have as frictionless and easy trade as we can with the European Union and elsewhere. So I used to work for another part of ABF which imported rice and I used to have to sign personally four times on a 200-page document with all sorts of stamps that had been licked and applied at various offices in Delhi and uh, Southampton. And so I know how difficult it can be if you don't get that way. So we would like to have frictionless trade. That said, I think ABF has always been very careful in actually pretty sharp contradistinction to Tate and Lyle. We don't think it's our job to tell government what our future relationship is with the European Union. There was a referendum, there were elected representatives making those decisions. We do think it's important that we get reciprocity. So with Europe, at the moment we trade without tariff or non-tariff barriers. And I've got a very successful export business to Ireland, also to Spain and to Italy. If the European Union 27 put tariff barriers against my exports, I'd expect the UK government to put equivalent tariff barriers back the other way. So that's an example of policy where we will make representations. A lot of it's practical, though. It's how do we make sure that whatever the future state is, you get as frictionless trade as possible so that I'm not having to personally sit down and sign a 1,200 page documents in six places. And if we don't stay, if the UK doesn't stay within the customs union, what measures can you put in place that will keep trade as frictionless as possible? Um, So within the single market, we don't have those tariff barriers. I think I'm interested in listening to the government talk about electronic means. I'm sure it is possible to have computer systems which create some of that frictionless trade with the European Union. But I'm wary. I talk to farmers all the time. We have 3,000 farmers without whom we don't have a business. If you talk to them about the basic farm payment system that's computerized and is a nightmare and many of us don't have tremendously positive experiences it systems provided by either our employer or government although it can be very good actually there are the dvla even hmrc although i don't particularly enjoy using the hmrc at its best it can work but there are ways to do that Really, with food, I still would be very surprised if we end up in a situation where, on agriculture, we move from free trade, which we currently have, to WTO tariffs. I would be very surprised if that happened. I don't know if that makes me an optimist, but I just don't see Europe, which has a significant trade surplus on agriculture with the UK, adding barriers. I just don't think it's in their interest. Do you have a sort of more general view of what the impact on agriculture in the UK will be after Brexit? You know, people paint very different scenarios. An agricultural sector unleashed from ridiculous restrictions and able to grow. Others talk about serious, potentially negative environmental effects, obviously loss of subsidies over the long term, I think one must assume. What's your view? I think it will be interesting and we'll see a UK agriculture policy set for the UK by UK politicians. So I think that gives them a great opportunity to step away from regulations and trading environments which benefited other EU27 countries. So, for example... We are protected from orange producers across the world. We don't have an orange industry. Spain does. So there are chances to change different parts of our trading environment 
to reflect where we do have defensive interests as a country. So actually, sugar's quite a good example. We have 3,000 growers. We pay over £300 million a year to farmers for their sugar bee. We support 9,500 jobs in rural England. So we have a defensive interest there, despite being one of the most efficient producers in the world. If you look overseas, Brazil and Thailand support their industries very extensively from government. So you can set a trading environment which works for us, and that takes some care. For agriculture more broadly, I think if you listen to what Gove is saying in DEFRA, and actually, to be fair, if you listen to what the NFU are saying, they're surprisingly aligned. They see that the future transfers of money from government to farmers will support environmental goods. They will reflect what government wants from farming. They reflect food security. And I think that's probably a good thing. And I think most farmers are relatively clear-sighted about what that will mean. Mm. Well, of course, a lot of farmers voted for Brexit, certainly down in the West Country, which is the area I know best. Let's talk a bit about other impacts of Brexit. I mean, how sensitive is your business to changes in exchange rates? Have you been impacted by the fall in sterling? Yeah, this again, I hear a lot of businesses talk about how important it is they have stability and certainty. But business isn't like that, I don't think. So you have to manage risks and uncertainties. And for our business, one of those risks is currency. So my input costs are almost entirely sterling. So I pay farmers for sugar beet and all of my employees are paid in sterling. So my costs are overwhelmingly sterling. My output is sold in euro. Actually, sugar is generally denominated in euros because I'm generally competing against European producers. The sugar index, actually, that everybody is increasingly pricing with reference to is in dollars. So I have to manage those risks. When Brexit happened, as part of managing our risk, we'll have had a portfolio of currencies and different hedges and instruments to make sure we were managing those risks. And actually, ABF did reasonably well because I think we had managed those risks and the currency changes post-Brexit worked to our favour broadly at British Sugar. They may not do in future though, so we just need to make sure that we keep managing those risks. Who are your biggest competitors within the EU? Sugar's obviously quite high volume and it's heavy and it's relatively low value, so it's people that are close by. So really, France has got a very efficient sugar industry. They've got very good yields in their fields because they've got good soil and good climatic conditions. So France, there are three big sugar companies, the biggest of which is Terios. In Holland, there are some big efficient producers. In Belgium, Germany has some big sugar producers. And then you can look to Poland. So those are really the people that I see competing a, a lot. And then there is Tate & Lyle, which imports sugar to London, cleans up and packs that sugar and sells that. There should be space in the market for all of those competitors. And as I say, I'm used to being in a market where you win on price, quality or service. And do you sense that any of those EU producers in France and Holland, for example, see advantages from Brexit? Do you sense that they are either lobbying government or interacting with government in a way that suggests that they think they will gain commercially? I know that the French sugar producers are lobbying their governments exceptionally hard to retain access to our market. So they do not want to be reverting to WTO level. So to give you an idea of what that would mean, if we did come out of the single market without a free trade agreement, the WTO tariff on refined white sugar is 419 euros a tonne. At the moment, sugar's trading about 400 euros a tonne. So that's more than a 100% tariff. So 
we produce in this country, actually we've had another bumper crop this year, so we'll have about 1.38 million tonnes of sugar. But the demand for sugar is about 2 million tonnes and has been more stable than you would think, given a lot of the press about sugar. It's a fairly stable market, about 2 million tonnes. So we have to import from somewhere about 800,000 tonnes if we want to carry on with that level of demand. It will come from cane producers in the tropics or it will come from Europe. But if we're on WTO rules, suddenly the European Union producers become quite severely disadvantaged and you'll see quite a big change in that competitive dynamic. Actually, a huge amount of cane comes into the UK completely tariff-free. So any of the less developed countries or the African-Caribbean countries have nil tariff on sugar into the EU. There's a €98 per tonne tariff on sugar from large parts of the world, including Brazil, which is still one of the most efficient producers, partly because of the big ethanol industry there. So you would see quite a lot of change. It wouldn't be to the French advantage, though, I don't think. So they're not lobbying for us to be excluded. I think you'll see quite a lot of that though i think you'll see people who see commercial advantage from having access to the uk market and then you'll see politicians who may or may not feel that they need to show a political cost to not being in the european union and the battle between those two will be fascinating so far how much do you feel that the negotiations i mean not just from the point of view of the british government but also out of brussels how far do you feel the negotiations reflect not just the day-to-day concerns of businesses like yours, but the longer-term issues? I think it's really hard to understand the negotiations seen through the prism of media, because I think <laughs> the media, with the greatest love and respect for the FT, has got its own agenda. And I think people love to see division and they love to see conflict, and it's on the front pages every day. I suspect, actually, a lot of the detail is rather more pedestrian and quotidian than that. So I don't think there's quite the drama that people think. I also think that the press, possibly the FT is a bit of an exception, is overwhelmingly focused on the UK's position in those negotiations. Whereas, of course, we're only one of, what, 30 actors? So you have 27 other member states, you have the Commission, you have the European Parliament and the UK view. And we get any possibility of a split, certainly within the governing party, but also to be fair in the Labour Party. I think the Liberal Democrats have managed to keep their 12 MPs pretty much aligned, but there are not many of them. If you look at the divisions that people try and stoke up between the customs union, a customs union, access to a customs, it's a bit angels dancing on the head of a pin. And people get, I think, very focused on process rather than the outcomes. The other thing, having watched EU negotiations for a while, not with operatic interest, but you watch it from a distance, everything always gets agreed at five minutes past midnight on the day that things were meant to be agreed. There is grandstanding from both sides. And so I think it's not surprising as someone that does negotiating fairly regularly, people open extreme, they start with positions they know they're not going to get to, but they anchor the other side towards where they want to get. And I can see that from both sides. So you're not planning for a sort of cliff edge departure and a hard Brexit. Your expectation is that there will be some sort of agreement within which you can continue more or less doing business as usual? As a responsible business, we have contingency plans and we think hard about what we would do were that to happen. Actually, though, for British sugar, we're a business where all of our raw material comes from the island of Great Britain. We process it in four factories in Britain. All of our employees are here. So actually, the impact on us there is fairly minimal. Our trade We have export business which could be disrupted to the European Union, although to the rest of the world that would be unaffected. 
We have customers in Ireland, as is a good example. So we have customers in the Republic of Ireland who buy sugar from us at the moment. They worry that if we crashed out of the single market without a deal, they would be paying a very substantial tariff. We're lucky that ABF, AB Sugar, also own a business in Spain. So all I need to do, or I say all, that's actually more complex, is make sure that I can switch the supply from my Irish customers from UK sugar to Spanish sugar. So that's a good example, hopefully, of something where we can contingency plan relatively easily. And then if the trading environment changes, then we will need to make sure that we serve customers in an an ordered way. And if you actually talk to people that buy sugar, they are definitely planning for different contingencies. So if you're running a big confectionery manufacturing plant, then you need to have sugar. You don't want to stop the chocolate line because you run out of sugar. And if they buy sugar from the European Union, then they have a real risk that that supply chain will get disrupted. So we see a lot of people making sure that they have an element of British sugar in their supply mix because, again, their job is to manage risk and that's what they're doing. Thank you. Yes, we must make sure the um, chocolate line isn't disrupted. (laughs) Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you. We'll be back in a fortnight with another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. You can also email us at brexitunspun at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.